the thing that has surprised me is what has happened at Bethlehem because of the first podcast. Because a lot of people didn't know about what had happened to us with Bethlehem. What I was anxious about was how it was going to be received. Right. And so how was it received? No. Well, I keep telling them, don't waste your 20s on trying to make an impact. Spend your 20s becoming a deep person. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. Hello and welcome to episode six, the final episode of season one of the Untangled Faith podcast. Today I'm wrapping up this season with a conversation with Dr. Gary Stratton, who joined us previously on episode two. Today we're talking about some of our observations about church culture and the advice he gives to those who are planning on a career in pastoral ministry. I'm also checking in with Sarah and Jeff Owens and Colleen Reese. And for those of you who have been following along since episode one, you may be wondering, like I have been, what has happened since they shared their stories on the podcast? Well, wonder no more because I snagged some time with them and asked them for an update. But first, let's start with my conversation with Dr. Gary Stratton, Dean and Professor of Spiritual Formation at Johnson University. Did have you seen or have you read um, Chuck DeGroat's book When Narcissism Comes to Church? I have not. It sounds like a fantastic book. But it was interesting how narcissism has infected so many leaders in the church. Stephen Covey was actually the first person that pointed out to me that uh, for his doctoral program, he had to basically read all the leadership books, you know, mm. that had been the top leadership books. Like he started putting them in piles and noticing that. Right around 1950, so you know, just after World War II, just really dramatic shift took place from the books before World War II were all about the most important thing in the leader was their character mm. to after World War II, almost person pers- thing about a leader was their skills. I have some guesses as to why it happened then and different things, but I, you know, I can tell you that uh, what we call evangelicalism was birthed right in that era, but I think it infected the church, you know, mm-hmm. even the conservative church. And as media platforms made it possible to have reach more people as, you know, even something positive like Billy Graham's ministry, reaching into people's living rooms, you know, on the TV mm-hmm. had a very accidentally negative impact of it's all about not goodness, yeah, but great, yeah. but, but greatness. Mm-hmm. How great can I be? And how much can I quantify that? How many people, how many converts, how many viewers, how many likes? Mm-hmm. And I think that those things are really war against the human soul. Well, have you seen, and maybe it goes along with this, 
this rise in a leadership culture. I'm really wondering about that CEO model for the senior pastor, what that mean, what that has meant for the church and how healthy it is. Always dangerous to talk in absolutes because it's not like one thing's all bad and one thing's oh, yeah. good, you know. And I do think there were definitely some positives that came out of that turn towards leadership, but it really was narcissized, however, however you would say that. The purpose of those books is to not for you to serve people, but how do you to be as an effective and successful and large a church leader as you can be. Mm-hmm. I remember when my son was uh, in college and we went and visited kind of our old church. He didn't know any of the people. It was all a whole turnover and pastoral team and different things in a different place. But about halfway through the sermon, he stormed out. And I, you know, went out to find him, see what's going on. I says, Dad, I can't go back in there. And I said, why? He because I'm a business major and I know when I'm just watching a business oh. plan being put out. I know when someone's just trying to attract customers and get referrals to grow the business so you can attract more customers and get more referrals. And, and I just was caught dead in my tracks because I just thought back over the last 10 minutes of the conversation. I said, that is exactly what this is. Oh. Um, he, I mean, he loves Jesus, but... I mean, we just were talking the other day. I says, I just, I don't know what to be. There's someone who really wants to follow Jesus and doesn't want to go anywhere near a church. My conversation with Dr. Stratton shifted to a discussion of what I've observed of a movement from more contemporary churches toward more traditional liturgical churches. I'm specifically seeing a movement toward Anglican churches. Erin Moon of the Popcast and the Bible Binge mentioned this in one of her podcasts, and I briefly shared with Dr. Stratton some of what she said inspired that journey. Erin shared in that episode that one of their problems with the more contemporary SBC church that she was attending was that it was so similar to her day job of planning church youth events that she couldn't separate that part of her brain when she went to worship on a Sunday morning. And they decided to go to an Anglican church, which I'm seeing more and more lately. Well, I suspect there's a reason for that. I'm flown into Phoenix to do some work with one of the largest churches in America. I also happen to have a friend on the other side of Phoenix who is pastoring a small church. Spending time with this, and there's one, I'm not, I'm not going to pick on one or the other. You know, mm-hmm. they both have the strings. Somebody who's leading, you know, the church of 120, very faithfully. They all know each other really well. They've all raised each other's families together. There's all the beauty of things that would happen in a, in a small church. And this other church that's got, you know, 20,000 people in a weekend But really cool things they're trying to do to connect people to one another, not just have them come and not just do an event. But driving back one night, I was listening to uh, uh, Conversing's Fuller Seminaries podcast, Mark Laberton, and he happened to have Paul Schaefer on. Paul Schaefer grew up in the Christian Reformed Church, had kind of wandered away, uh, become kind of famous for for his dissertation being made into a book, and then became a filmmaker. And he was thinking that maybe this was his last film, but it was basically a little bit of a conversation of how he'd wandered back to faith. But then he said something, but it was so profound because he said, you know, I tried going to one of these mega churches. I think he called them mega store churches. (laughs) They're all about adrenaline. You know, all the things we try to do in Hollywood to get put somebody in a place where they're fully, so they will keep paying attention and they'll keep buying things. He says, I've tried going to this real, you know, little church near my house. He didn't mention what the denomination was. It sounded like it probably was Anglican. said, and he's like, I go to that church because it's boring. (laughs) (laughs) And Mike Laverton, he was like, what do you mean? (laughs) He says, I need to be bored. Yeah. 
I live in a culture, everything demands entertainment, entertainment, entertainment. I need to sit there you know, and who I am and who I'm becoming. And I need to think through the week ahead. And I, I need someone to just simply read the scripture, the text of scripture to remind me, you know, of the faith that I'm connected to and to, and to give a short in, in full light, no spotlights, no fog machines, no, you know, just, and I'm, I'm sustained for the week. And I just thought, oh my gosh, I've just watched these two things at work. I've watched a transcendental church and a mega store church. And, you know, I'm not, saying one's right and one's wrong because they both have a lot of good things going on. This church, the little church has never reached that many people in all the years that existed. There is something I think we're missing when we give into this CEO business model, information, marketing, getting people to buy things, getting people to buy in that is not good for our soul. Mm. And of course, the person who is more responsible for getting the church to go this direction, anybody else was Bill Heibel. Yeah. Yeah, his leadership summit and his bringing business leaders in to come. And so many pastors would just go to visit to figure out how could they replicate the model. Yeah. No, and there's and there's good things to be learned. I'm not, uh, but it was kind of heartbreaking to me reading a church called Tove and just thinking, ah, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, there it I, is. that's there the it is. tricky thing about all of this. Some really good things can come out of something that can also tend to to hurt someone. But power corrupts. It doesn't matter if the power is coming from a church structure or from a corporate structure or for something else. It tends to corrupt people yeah. and they want to hold on to it. And they James McGregor Burns calls, oh no, no, no. It's not just that there's servant leadership and there's power brokers. There's this middle group that's figured out, oh, I can act like a servant to to get the power I want. And I thought there's there it is. That's wow. that is the church right now at the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st century. Since Dr. Stratton teaches spiritual formation at Johnson University, I was curious about the sorts of conversations he was having with his students. In higher education, you are with young men and women. Some are a little older. How do you help mentor them towards healthy ministry? I teach a class in spiritual formation. It's you know, but I very deliberately keep the sm- the the classes small enough that we can sit in a circle. I never. I, my goal is to never stand up. My goal is to stay sitting down. And my goal is to never talk with just me talking for longer than seven minutes and to get them engaging with one another, get them engaging in spiritual disciplines, trying to convince them by every means possible that ministry and life is an inside out proposition. And that out of that comes, bears the fruit of righteousness. And the, but a lot of them said, well, how, how did I get this point? Grow up in the whole church and no one's ever talked about leading from the inside out. No one's ever yeah. talked about connecting to Christ. No one's ever talked about character first. And then I keep trying to talk them not into rushing out and taking the first job, per, church that will employ them when they graduate. I said, that's mm-hmm. just a recipe for disaster. They'll just use you up like any corporation will. And if you graduate from college when you're 22 and you're still growing up. No. Well, I keep telling them, don't waste your 20s on trying to make an impact. Spend your 20s becoming a deep person that can impact the world at age 30. I mean, if Jesus didn't start his ministry, he's 30. David didn't become king until he's 30. Joseph didn't become prime minister, he's 30. The odds that you're going to do something before 30 that's really very important, I think are really low. Matter of fact, you can't even really tell the trajectory of someone's life spiritually until 47 is kind of like this top of the bell curve where you can tell. And you can probably start telling in some people's lives as early as 37 and some people not till 52. But in that 10-year range, you literally can chart whether someone's been doing the work of being a deep person or 
They've just been trying to acquire skills to grab more success in what they're doing. The first group, those have really been working to become a deep person or have been through difficult life circumstances that they've responded to to become a deep person, sometimes it's not intentional, is about a third. And then the other two thirds are probably evenly divided between people who just kind of plateau out right around in their 40s and they just never become anything more. They're kind of hanging on the rest of their life. And those that we read about in the paper because they flame out. You wouldn't encourage them to go straight into a full-time ministry role that has them up front. And... No. Well, what I say is that you need to interview the church of the ministry opportunity and find mm-hmm. out, you know, are they interested in developing you as a person and helping you holistically help your marriage grow, help you grow in your walk with the Lord, help you grow? Are they interested in investing in you? Then you, then yeah. But if they're not, no, don't go anywhere near them because they're just yeah. going to use you up. And you normally just have to ask the people that report directly to the pastor, what kind of relationship do they have with the pastor? And you can tell instantly. Uh, the pastor is just a, but then here I am using a business concept, but you know, a genius with a thousand helpers, or if there's somebody who is Christ-like and seeking to invest in the lives of the people immediately around him while ministering to a lot of people. Dr. Stratton also shared with me about a new initiative. His wife has been a part of teaching. By the way, Dr. Gary Stratton's wife, Sue, is also Dr. Stratton. She is teaching an adult cohort on spiritual formation. She's got this wonderful, we just started this initiative this year to leaders that are engaged in local churches, predominantly in the um, under-resourced parts of town, which gives a whole wonderful dynamic to a classroom. (laughs) I mean, I was talking to one of them today who was just talking about, Sue teaches two semesters of spiritual formation, just saying like, said, man, she just makes us do things that we never done before. Like to look <laughs> at Jesus and to look at ourselves and to look like, we're like, what is she doing? But it's changing. I just talked to this guy's best friend today and he's talking about how this cl- class is changing him and how he can see it on him. He's just a different person because he's really been given free to do what he's always thought intuitively was true, was to make sure that my first priority is being connected to the Lord in solitude. And my second priority is to be deeply connected in community to people who can speak into my life and not just me speaking into their life. And yeah. that out of that, there's incredible overflow to give away to others. I love that you guys are investing in good spiritual formation, heart inner work, as well as some of those other practical things about what it means to be in ministry. That gives me a lot of hope. But the idea that we have leaders coming, you know, they can walk and chew gum at the same time. And we we desperately need that. And I don't want to set David up as like the perfect leader because he certainly had his moments. I mean, it does seem like we have been enduring a season of Saul a season of leaders that are very much like Saul. It's all about them. It's all about mm-hmm. manipulating the, the kingdom of God around you know their benefit. But I just, as I pray, I just sense, so it's saying, yeah, you know, I've reserved David's in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. You know, might be running for their lives from time to time, but I'm, I'm waiting for my moment to bring those men and women forward to, to lead the church into a better era. I think that better ears are already starting internationally, but I think it needs to reach deep into the heart of the church in America. That seems to be a common theme is that we are learning a lot about healthy church from our brothers and sisters that aren't in America. I had the privilege, but not that long ago, to spend time with the leaders of three different house church networks mm-hmm. in China. 
but it was a it was a beautiful time. I learned a lot. It was just so hum, so humbling. And at the final lunch, I was sitting with the three of them and a couple other leaders, and it was kind of you know kind of my time to really get someone on you know or one on three you know time and ask questions. And it was really beautiful. But at the end, I just said, you know, I, I when I meet people that I feel connected to, I try to ask them if there's you know one thing that I could commit to pray to pray for them for the rest of their life. And uh, there was not much hemming and hawing. There was kind of agreement between each other. And then as typical of how the Chinese church works, the you know the elder member uh, looked us said, we would ask you to pray that our government will not make Christianity legal. I'm like, what? <laughs> and he could, he could read it on me. I, and he goes, because if they do, we fear we'll become as weak and anemic and addicted to power and money as the churches in the West. And I, I can only tell you in the timing of this, it was around the time that I was watching the church kind of becoming really politically power hungry. And I was just thinking, how many Christians in America would say, oh, you know, please, Lord, make it illegal. Now, I'm not saying we should give up religious freedom. Don't overquote yeah. me there. I'm very much <laughs> grateful for it. But but the very fact that they saw something that we treasured so much as an impediment in our actually following Jesus was sobering. Realize it just clicked in my head. The church, Mao Zedong, took over in 1949. There's about a roughly a million Christians in all of China out of about 37 million people at that time. Mao Zedong killed half of them. About half of those that were left said, well, I'm not going to stick with this. The numbers, once again, somewhere between 100,000, 250,000 Christians left in all of China. And they were, I mean, they were sawn in two and beat up, lived in cages and uh, lived in prison and were tortured. And, and yet here we are, 70 years later, and the Chinese government admits there's 100 million Christians. I think it's probably two, two and a half times that, yeah. which is clo- it gets close to 15% of their total population. And so they've won their country while we've been hanging on to power and losing our country in the exact same 70 years. I mean, it's just, I just was so struck by the parallel. Uh, and I think it's because we're addicted to power. If I had been really smart, I would have come up with this idea prior to one day before my podcast needed to be finished, but that's not how this worked. It was Monday evening when I had the brilliant idea to check in with the Owens and with Colleen again to do a where are they now segment. So as a reminder, Colleen was the first story that I featured, and you can find it on episodes one and two of this first season. She shared what happened when she discovered that her pastor had plagiarized hundreds of sermons. To bring you up to date, you should know that the account of the plagiarizing pastor was published by the Religion News Service on April 27th, 2021. And Colleen went on the record and gave some statements for that article. I will share a link in the show notes. Here's Colleen. I want people to hear what has happened since people heard your story, how it has impacted you, anything surprising that happened. So were you anxious about it? I mean, there's some vulnerability there in putting your story out there and then be like, I have no idea what it's going to sound like. A little bit, but because you and I have such a good relationship, I knew, you know, your heart, I knew it wasn't going to be told in a way that would be something I wouldn't care for or wouldn't wish to be out there. What I was anxious about was how it was going to be received. Right. And so how was it received? I did not receive any negative comments. As a matter of fact, everything I received was positive and encouraging. A lot of I'm so grateful 
that you spoke out messages from friends and from non-friends, from people out there in the world who I don't even know. And some people that I look up to, people like Mary DeMuth, who was super encouraging, people on Twitter that I've never met in my life, very encouraging, very positive statements that this is going to help other people. And it already has. There is a really supportive community on Twitter for people that have experienced church hurt and spiritual abuse. As Scott McKnight would say, a pocket of Tove, a pocket of goodness. I am not surprised that you had good feedback there. You had shared something with me that kind of blew my socks off. And that was that your pastor listened to the podcast and gave you some feedback. Another friend shared the podcast with him. He emailed me after listening to both of them. And it was the most beautiful, encouraging email just about how awful it must have been. I think one of the biggest things about that email was his reaction to what that pastor had done. And it was that it was basically, he didn't use this word, but it was deplorable because the fact that he would do all of that and then still go on to another church and do it again. But the email also just was so encouraging. And the fact that he said, I don't know where you are in your healing journey, but I'm here for you. And I will be absolutely willing to sit down and and talk with you. And he also said that this is something he was really glad he had listened because he can take this and all the, what the guests said on those episodes and Amy, what you said and use them when he has other members or visitors to his church that are coming from spiritual abuse and church hurt. And that was the the cherry on top for me. Yeah. I mean, I respect him with everything in me because of how he pastors our flock. I am so grateful to him because of the way he speaks from his heart and he can take this and, and help someone else with it or look into some of the people we've you talked about, you know, some of the resources and that'll really just help him. That was the best thing for me. I love to hear that. So since we talked, as I was working on episode two and, you know, realized that that former pastor had just recently addressed what we had just talked about with this current <laughs> congregation, decided to add that update on there. We had recorded this though so very long ago. We had decided to do this episode. We may have even recorded it in January. It's aired in April. We had no idea what he was doing. We weren't really paying attention to him. Every once in a while, I may hear from somebody like where he's at or what he's doing. It's not like I spent any considerable time thinking about him, wondering what he was doing. Here's the part of the story where Colleen and I start talking about how in the world did it come to be that a journalist from Religion News Service covered the story of the plagiarizing pastor? Well, here's a little hint. A few months ago, I went on the record for a journalist and I just happened to have his number. So when all of this broke, I thought, why don't I text Bob Smetana and see if he's interested in a story? The fact that this happened was really sort of surprising. And I want to clarify for people. So as I was, you know, working on that episode number two, because of my um, relationship with Bob Smetana, I just messaged him and said, Hey, Bob, are you interested in a story? Because I thought it was really interesting that a pastor would leave one church, you know, be asked to leave because of plagiarism. 
and then go to another church doing the same thing and even standing up there and, and lying about it and knowing that plagiarism is an issue with pastors. I thought it might be valuable. And I was really grateful for how Bob put the article together as starting a conversation about what's happening in churches and let people sort of decide and go from there. And it started a, a lot of conversation online, which I thought was very valuable. The Religion News Service is a national service. So it's not just a local journalist. So it wasn't like where the current pastor is or where he he was. This is a newswire that serves a whole bunch of people. He had to decide if there was value to this that was beyond just one individual person that wasn't a public figure, really a national public figure. And I'm really grateful for how he handled that. You know, I think I said, Hey, I think Bob's going to pursue this. If you want to talk to him, then you had to decide what you thought of that. To go back to what you said before about how you had never really spent considerable time watching what he was doing. I never did either. Every so often I'd pop in and, you know, kind of just check things out. This time somebody had said, go look at this church where he's at. Do those images look similar to you? And I was like, this is not, it's not my time. I've already been there. I've walked that road. This is not my church, not my congregation. I prayed over it. And I said, Lord, if if you want me to, I will, but I'm going to wait to hear from you. God works in so many different ways to put together another situation that had to do with his new church. Oddly enough, he had preached about the situation. You know, he was in, in a sermon right after the, like the podcast was about to be released or was, had already been released. I can't remember the timing. And I went and listened to the first 10 minutes of this sermon where he's talking about how he was abruptly fired from his other church because a coup was formed (laughs) of people who didn't like him, you know, that he lost everything, his church family, his income, his, and that was less than true. (laughs) I mean, it was, it was so bad. (laughs) Number one, I'm not I'm not powerful enough to form a coup. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Um, Colleen, if you knew the number of coups that I had been accused of being a part of. Right. And he was given a severance and he was given, you know, so many opportunities to, to get right with it and to do right. Okay. When you said, Hey, do you want to talk to Bob? I said, yeah, absolutely. Are you angry with your, with this pastor? Honestly, I'm not. There's moments where I do get angry because of something he does or says. It makes me sad. It makes my heart hurt for the people that are sitting in those pews every Sunday. I feel bad for his family and his friends. I feel bad for the people who, and sad and heartbroken for the people who were at our church and were hurt by what happened and are watching him do it again. Yeah. I've had several members of our former church come to me and tell me how grateful they are. Just that it was like somebody said, I was able to put the pieces together. Mm -hmm. I can't be angry anymore. And it took me a long time to not be angry. When I agreed to do the podcast in the beginning, it was because I was no longer angry. God did a work when we recorded that the burden for me, any, anything that was left in me was lifted. And I was free, free of, of having to pretend it wasn't me anymore. And that was the last thing I needed. And then when I heard that 
you know, what he was speaking about the coup and, and how, you know, he was forced out and was given nothing and all of that. I was momentarily angry. Started the article with <laughs> Colleen Reese was ticked at her pastor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I felt like at the moment I was like, ooh. But then I thought, no, that that was the case. I was upset. And I was angry that he was preaching something that wasn't biblical. And so it, it it really made sense. And and yes, Bob was so honoring in the way he handled the story. And I was so grateful for that. And, you know, I was done with it. Yeah. After we finished that podcast, I was like, oh, I'm free. Everything's free. And then I thought, no, we're going to do this one last thing. I mean, we couldn't have planned that. Like what a little bow around the end of it. What I'm hearing you say, and I think it's really encouraging for people to hear is that you came into telling the story understanding kind of why you were doing it. You had some really clear expectations and it wasn't about what anybody else would do. It was about just putting the truth out there and giving people an opportunity to respond to it however they would. People are going to believe what they want, but the majority of people that that hear it and read it see it as something that shouldn't be happening in the church. It gave me even more hope. And I'll tell you, I don't regret a moment of it. It's only made me stronger in my faith and it's made me stronger as a, as a woman. I'm grateful for it rather than feeling any kind of regret or bitterness or anything. I don't regret a bit of it. Even up to, to yesterday, I had a friend who is going through something at a church. She called me and said, hey, I want you to look at this because I know what you've been through. And that right there was worth it all. I'm an elementary school teacher. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's yeah. what I- and Hey, I, you know, these elementary school teachers are changing the world. Laura Berenger <laughs> was on the podcast last week. She helped write the book. <laughs> Maybe we need yeah. to watch out for those elementary teachers more. <laughs> The second story I featured this season was with Sarah and Jeff Owens. For a refresher of their story, you can check out episodes three and four. Here's the Cliff's notes for you. The Owens had a series of difficult situations with Christian institutions and churches. The nonprofit they worked with, while missionaries in China ended up being very unhealthy, a pastor from their sending church, Bethlehem Baptist, told them to return the children they were fostering and hoping to adopt to the orphanage and come back without them. Sarah and Jeff later ended up at a Sovereign Grace church after returning to the U.S. When they asked the leaders of that church about encouraging a third-party investigation into abuse allegations at a church in their denomination, all heck broke loose. You really need to listen to episode four to get the whole story. I'll wait while you do. I'll be here when you get back. When you hear Jeff or Sarah reference SGC, that's a reference to the Sovereign Grace church they attended. I started out our conversation by asking Sarah and Jeff if they had felt nervous while waiting for the episode to drop. And Sarah reminded me that she had felt a little more uneasy about episode two, because when we recorded that, I had forgotten that we had a little mix up in our communication and they had forgotten. And so they came to the recording sort of last minute and Sarah hadn't had the time to prepare that she had hoped to have. Here's the Owens. Yeah. So I was like <laughs> going to print out or at least open up all the old emails and like, make sure I had all the wording right. And yeah, you know, but you did such a great job of editing it that it was fine. 
<laughs> you made us sound intelligible. So since people heard your story, what kind of response yeah. have you gotten? We've heard from a number of people, including three people who were former SGC members. One we didn't know, he joined, I guess, after we left, but he wrote to thank us because he said he knew something wasn't right and it helped shed a lot of light for him. And the other two were people who were there that we knew, one of whom we knew had gone through even worse stuff than we had later. The interesting thing was at that meeting that the church had where the pastors had like asked people to speak against us, two of the people that spoke against us at that meeting later on suffered even worse spiritual abuse stuff by the pastors than we did. And both of them came back and asked us to forgive them basically for not really seeing what was going on. Like one family we were pretty good friends with before that. And so that meant a lot that they would come back and tell us that. But the other family, we were friends with them, but not like super close friends. But their situation was so terrible. Like it was almost criminal what had happened to them. And I mean, the guy, then he told Jeff after the podcast that he ended up in the hospital for two days after what happened to him, what the pastors did to him. Dress of it like was basically like causing a heart attack. He really wanted. So he wanted us to know that. And like he said, he can't even really talk about it yet. He really wanted to talk to me, but even trying to talk about it made him so dressed and emotional that he couldn't. He was able to talk about it enough to let me know he wanted to. But that was as far as he could get. Yeah. And then I, I've heard from a couple of people, maybe I did. I don't know. I would say from SGC, maybe five or six people that were involved have come back and said stuff to us and all, all positive things. Nobody from the church could, took time to tell you that they were upset. Right. Okay. It wasn't like they didn't know or didn't have the opportunity to know the story before because we went public with it. So it yeah. was already out there in social media. If they wanted to find out what happened, they could. The thing that has surprised me is what has happened at Bethlehem because Mm -hmm. of the first podcast, because a lot of people didn't know about what had happened to us with Bethlehem. And it just wasn't something that we ever felt like we needed to go public with. We never felt like it was like Bethlehem as a whole was against us. I mean, even after the SGC stuff happened, we went back to Bethlehem. Yeah. And, and the pastors that were there at that time that we worked with, they had no idea of anything that had happened to us before. Recently, there's been a ton of stuff happening at Bethlehem. We couldn't remember until we listened to the podcast where, whether we yeah. ever actually said Bethlehem by name. And then we were listening. We're like, well, I guess we did. And it's out there. <laughs> but we got contacted by one pastor at Bethlehem. Who's, he's the counseling pastor. And he's the one that has really like stood with people that are trying to like call out some of this really bad stuff that's happening. He's the only one who's been supporting them. The elder board is just attacking him. Like, so he and his wife reached out to us and were just thanking us for the podcast and how encouraging it has been to them. Well, you just never know what will happen. You just never know. Yeah. That's surprising to me. And I think part of it is hope and help. Like you don't know who your story is going to help. Yeah. You know, you don't know who really needs to hear what you've done or what you've been through, Mm -hmm. but you have to be in a place where I think where you can really see your story for what it is, where it doesn't feel like cloudy anymore. The, The stuff that's happening at Bethlehem right now, it just seems crystal clear to me. 
the dynamics, what's, what exactly is going on? Like one of my friends who was meeting with the elders and doing all this stuff. And I told her, no, this is what you need to say. And this is what you need to not put in the letter. And this is what you do need. And you need to make sure you print everything out and you hand out copies and do it. But it just seems so obvious. Like you have to do this. And then I told her, you got to take somebody else with you. You cannot go into this meeting without advocates on your side. She took another friend with her and then the friend was like, oh my goodness, I had no idea how terrible these people actually are. But they can't see clear because they're right in the middle. But yeah. having like, time and distance and space, you can see much more clearly the games that people are playing and the patterns that emerge. The Bible says there's no new thing under the sun, right? What Diane Lingler talks about and what all of the spiritual abuse tactics books talks about, you're dealing with narcissists. Yeah. And when it's the system itself infected, I think that changes the whole game. This whole system is trying to protect itself. (laughs) How did it feel to hear from somebody that had spoken against you? The one family, when they came back to us and asked our forgiveness, it was really freeing. And I think it helped us feel, I already knew we weren't crazy, but there was the element of right, you know, like see and it was like almost relief. You really are who I thought you were. It's not a relation, another relationship that is dead and that we have to walk away. I think the comforting thing for me was that we wanted to be in relationship with them again. I realized I have been wanting to forgive you. I've been wanting to have you back in our life and have a relationship with you. It feels so good that we can do that. Like you see it now for what it is too. And even though I'm sorry that you had to suffer through that stuff, Yeah, It's just reassuring and comforting. You now see it as well. I think there was, with the one family in particular, they reached out to us at the time when we were telling our story initially on social media to tell us, take that down. Right, You need to stop talking about this. They contacted us initially to rebuke us for what we were doing. And they were one of the families that spoke against us at the meeting too. And so to have them come and reach out to us was especially, gives us hope. Then it gives us hope for the whole, for everybody in the system. (laughs) You have seen the cost for people to actually see the truth. So I would imagine that you have some empathy for what it takes for someone to be like, oh, I was wrong. Because it means if losing relationship, mm-hmm. having to make a decision about their church, if they're still there. There's a lot tied in with that. Yeah. I think my initial thing when people start to see what's happening and, and they realize like how widespread the cancer really is. Yeah. And I think my prayer always is, is like, God, keep them. Don't let them let go of what is true of who you really are. Because when all you've known is a system that you realize was never what you thought, or was only about supporting itself, not really sure. about the people that are a part of the system. If it, then, then that can just become the whole gospel can be that all that you've ever mm-hmm. known about God yeah. is wrapped up in the system. And you don't know how to separate out who God really is from anything you've ever known and everything that you've ever known is sinking sand. That's just my prayer for people when I, when they start to see what's happening and they start to get realize, Oh my goodness, I've been experiencing spiritual abuse. Like my pastor actually is not for me at all. Is that God just keep them. Don't let them lose their faith. Let them separate out who you are from what is happening to them right now. I think that's why things like your podcast 
and Diane Langberg, Wade Mullen, you're talking on social media, writing books. When people get exposed to those things, you know, number one, it, it puts, you can put a name to what's not right. It lets you start to recognize it for what it is to break it down and see, okay, here's what is right. And here's what is not right. And for some people who maybe have a solid enough background, it, you know, faith background, yeah. that might be enough on its own that they can then kind of do the work and probably reach out to people and who are, have been through it or find people on social media that might be enough, but for other people, they need actual physical people to come alongside them, yeah, help them walk through it. Right before everything imploded between the Owens and Sovereign Grace Church, Jeff and Sarah's oldest daughter got married to someone who had been a longtime attender of that church. He grew up in at SGC. Like it was all he had ever known. He married into our family and then just all this stuff started happening. We just felt awful for him. And we could see him really struggling. Like He got himself into so much hot water because he would try to go talk to them. The way they responded to him was so, it was worse than I thought they would do. I mean, it was yeah. so bad. Yeah. I mean, the church, everything he had ever known about church and godly people was in complete shambles, except he was married to our daughter. <laughs> and I just... And when I think about like, God, why in the world did you have us go to SGC? I think a lot of it was to give him a picture of what real faith is outside of an abusive culture. As an outsider and hearing Sarah and Jeff tell their story and seeing this arc from the beginning to the end has been sort of interesting. And I mentioned to Sarah that I had seen this pattern of her being able to exercise this muscle of speaking out against things that did not seem right, even from a young age in her experience in Bill Gothard's homeschool program into more current time as an adult. And so we talked a little bit about that. The older we get, the more I realize I don't know. I am hopefully becoming more humble and able to realize people's experiences are all different. So their worldview is going to be different. I mean, living overseas was a huge, huge piece of that for us. And it hurt. They're trying to live and understand somebody else's reality physically hurt. My brain hurt trying to think about this differently. So, I mean, that muscle was sore, you know, for many years. But I feel like now I can tear apart everything like, oh, maybe that isn't true. Okay, well, I'm just going to tear that apart and like rip it down to the roots and see. And I mean, that's how I've gotten to where I now think about, you know, like women in ministry and church stuff. I mean, it's because like, I felt like I have to really break open everything I ever thought about this. And I think going back to the whole like spiritual abusive systems and exercising the muscle, being okay, like even at a young age to challenge beliefs and to not think that it means God doesn't exist. It starts off with small things like the nylons, and then it turns into send your kids back to the orphanage, and then it turns into trying to cover up sexual abuse. I mean, it becomes easier to see what really is not of God. There's maybe a little lesson there as parents, too. Do we allow our kids to speak up about things that don't make sense to them, and we don't have to be worried about it? Ultimately, whether you have faith or not is not up to me. It's up to God who has to reveal himself to you or you won't know him. I know him 
because he revealed himself to me. And I don't want you to know him because a system that you've yeah. bought in tells you like a real. secondary revelation through, through yeah. you. I want you to know him because he made you know him because mm-hmm. he has spoken to you and shown himself to you in ways that you can't deny because a system will never do that for you. If your faith is real in who God really is, he won't be shaken even when the system falls apart. That is what I want most for my kids. So even if it has to look messy and ugly, that we're not doing much spiritual discipline or spiritual training, I look at the mountains every day and beg God to reveal himself to them. And when they bring their doubts or confusions to say, yeah, I get that. You're right. That doesn't make sense. You know, yeah. Make a safe space for them. Bring those doubts and questions. It's okay. It's okay to doubt. I mean, one of Jesus' disciples was a doubter. That was his name. And he was still Jesus' disciple. What did Wendy think of her mom saying, somebody's got to drive the tent peg to the (laughs) guy's head? (laughs) She loved it. I'm sure she loved it. One of the benefits of editing these podcasts is that I get to spend many hours with the voices and the stories of my guests in my ears. Today, as I wrapped up the final edits, I felt so encouraged to hear Dr. Stratton share about the focus on spiritual formation of our next generation of church leaders. And then there was Colleen's update on how encouraging her own pastor has been, as well as the response the Owens have received to retelling their story. I feel thankful to be a part of this. I'm reminded that healing takes time, and I'm seeing again that God's faithfulness has been constant through the narrative arcs of all of these accounts. Thanks for listening to Episode 6 of Untangled Faith. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful if you'd share it with a friend and leave a review on iTunes. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook as Untangled Faith for transcripts and show notes check out untangledfaithpodcast.com. Guys, that's for my Northern friends. Y'all, that's for my Southern friends. This is a wrap of season one of my very first podcast. This has been my practice podcast season, and it has been more awesome and much more difficult than I anticipated. I'm taking off a couple weeks to plan out the next seasons. Make sure you are subscribed and I will see you in June for season two.